The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, we're all here despite the rain. Surprised some of us weren't washed down into the lake with the downpour we had this afternoon. Who's actually camping in a tent this week? Anybody actually in a tent? How are you all surviving? Okay. You're still, you're still alive. That's good. I had a couple of remarks on my pants on the way down to the meeting. Um, uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, <clears throat> and I'm not to blame. That's all I can say. Uh, my wife was seeing some gray appearing on both edges of my hair. And the next thing I knew, I had some billabong pants uh, on the... So. That's, that's the reason for those. Um, we're in uh, John's Gospel for the duration of the week in the evenings. And uh, tonight I want to take us to John chapter 5. On Sunday, we were considering John's prologue. And last night, we also considered uh, the prologue of John's Gospel, which is a, just a remarkable passage. We could have stayed there all week, but... I wanted for the uh, sake of um, a change of pace to move out of uh, the prologue and cover some of the other material in John from his discourses and some of the signs that John records. And this evening I want to uh, pick up a part uh, of a lengthy discourse in, in John 5. Our first session on the prologue, we looked at the nature of the triune God, the Word being the Son, and the fact that God is all personal and all relational, and we saw how that was critical as a foundation for knowledge, and then yesterday we considered the Word as light and life, and we looked at the idea of infallibility and authority, and how if you do not accept the infallibility of Christ, you don't jettison the idea the concept of infallibility, you merely transfer it somewhere else. And we saw that in Christ there is light and life. When we turn from Christ, there is the corollary of that, which is death and darkness. Tonight, I want to consider uh, a passage in which Jesus himself is speaking and dealing with, in the first part, uh, which we're not going to touch on uh, in any length, in the first part of the discourse, his prerogatives as the Son, his unity, his absolute unity with his Father. In fact, uh, John 5, the early part of John 5 through the verse can be considered really a Christian defense, Jesus' own defense of monotheism, establishing his total unity with his Father. The second part, beginning in verse 30 through to the end of the chapter, which I want to deal with this evening, has to do with the witnesses or the validation that Jesus offers for the claims that he has made for himself in the first part of the discourse. He's claimed this divine prerogative as the Son, an equal authority and power with that of his Father, even though, in terms of the economy of the Godhead, he is in voluntary submission to his Father, and there is this reciprocity in their relationship, the Son glorifying his Father, doing what his Father wills, and the Father then, of course, glorifying the Son. 
But John 5, the second part, brings us into Jesus' own defense of his claims. Let's pick it up in verse 30, and we'll read through to the end of the chapter. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and a shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another, and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you. Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus, in this passage, and uh, I'm going to touch on all four of these this evening as the uh, content of what I want to say, calls forward for witnesses in terms of the defense of his claims. He's been dealing in the first part with his unity with the Father, and that leads now naturally to the question of his authority, which in the end, we come to understand is a self-attesting authority. The theme of Jesus' own defense then is this authority as he continues to identify himself as God the Son. We can readily identify these witnesses. The first witness that Jesus identifies is John the Baptist. The second is his works or his signs that he has been performing. The third is his father. And the fourth is the scripture, and specifically Jesus cites Moses. Now, at the outset, let's uh, remind ourselves that the person testifying about himself here is the one we've been introduced to in John's prologue. And it's important, I think, that we establish that in our minds at the beginning, that the person who is now 
identifying witnesses to his identity is the person who has been revealed to us as the Word. We've seen in the previous sessions this doctrine of the Trinity where the members of the Trinity are exhaustively representational of each other. If you have seen me, Jesus says, you've seen the Father, for I'm in the Father, and the Father is in me. In him was all the fullness of God dwelling bodily. And yet here in this uh, passage, we have the condescension of Jesus is seen to a remarkable degree in that he is, before the Pharisees, the scribes, these Jewish teachers of the time, facing their charges, their arbitrary charges, to present a witness to the truth of his identity and his corresponding authority. Now, we're all familiar with the concept of a court of law. And in a court of law, a defendant may be called upon to give testimony, but you can't witness for yourself. You can call the defendant to the stand, but witnesses are those who are supposed to be independent testimony to what you are claiming or saying. Jesus affirms actually in this passage indirectly the authority of the law which he gave to Moses in matters of human affairs because the law requires two or three witnesses that any matter might be established. This is why Jesus begins by talking about if I alone bear witness, verse 31, about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. So Jesus is very conscious of the context in which He is speaking, and to whom he is speaking, people versed in the law of Moses. And he accepts the conditions here of the law. Now, this is done, Jesus makes clear, not because he needs human validation, but because he wants people to be saved. That's the stated reason that Jesus gives here. If you look there in verse 34, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He's condescending to cite these witnesses for the benefit of his hearers, for the benefit of his listeners, that they might know salvation. Jesus points then and refers to his, uh, indirectly to his most oft-quoted book, Deuteronomy, where we read, One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits, By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. Deuteronomy 19.15. Jesus brings forth four witnesses. And I want to argue that never in all history has there been such an overwhelming, watertight case. I'll tell you why. Two of the witnesses are infallible. That always helps. The Father and the Scriptures, of course, if you accept the premises of Scripture. The, The Father is one testimony. The scriptures are offering another testimony. Another is empirically undeniable, his signs. Jesus has been doing and performing all kinds of incredible signs that people have seen and witnessed and been astonished. And he cites those. And he also cites the greatest man born of woman till the time of Christ, John the Baptist. That's quite a good lineup of witnesses. God the Father, 
the scriptures, miracles, and John the Baptist, whom Jesus himself in Matthew 11, 11 calls, says there was none greater born of woman than John until the time of the kingdom. And he doesn't bring forth these witnesses because he thinks that in some way his testimony is invalid, not because he needs human attestation. One of the remarkable things you'll notice about the Bible, unlike all other works that claim some form of authority, is that there's no footnoting. Jesus never footnotes Cicero or uh, Plato or Aristotle or anybody else. There's no footnoting in Scripture. God, God doesn't need to refer beyond himself to some external source of authority for validation. Even Michael Haken needs to footnote people in his historical researches. We footnote people in our academic work because we want to show where our authority is, from where we've derived what we are citing. Jesus can't do anything of himself, he says in verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. The Father is actually witnessing through the Son at all times. But let's consider then the first witness. Jesus draws attention to the first witness, who is John. Now, verses 31 and 32 are not referring, in my opinion, to John. The first two verses, anyway, I think, are referring to the testimony of God himself. And then he comes to the testimony of John in verse 33. We often don't give John the Baptist perhaps the place that he deserves or the attention that he deserves given the way he was regarded by our Lord. He was very highly regarded by the Lord Jesus himself, not just because of the prophetic significance of what John had to say, uh, but because of the presentness of the light that John was. He was a burning and a shining light. And he was continuing a prophetic tradition that had gone on through the centuries. The spirit of Elijah. This prophetic witness was an ongoing witness. And it was a witness that Jesus points out that the Pharisees themselves had especially and particularly enjoyed. In fact, he says in verse 35 that they'd rejoiced in it for a while. He was a burning and a shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Jesus points out that they themselves had sent people to John for baptism. And Jesus is reminding them that John's teaching, John's preaching, John's witness could have set them on the right path if they'd had their ears truly opened to what John was saying and if they'd really received what he had to say. In fact, the earliest disciples of Jesus, you'll recall, were first John's disciples. And John pointed out the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And they became then disciples of Jesus. You can read about this in John chapter 1, 35 through 37. So John's ministry is famous and it's important. And Jesus actually very effectively used the ministry of John in disputing with the Pharisees on a number of occasions. My, my favorite instance, um, employing a wonderful approach to apologetics, is when he is asked a complex question 
uh, when the Pharisees are challenging him, the teachers of the law are challenging him about his authority and what authority he is doing and saying the things that he is doing. He's being asked to tell them and tell the crowd on whose authority he's ministering. And Jesus says, I'll, I'll tell you in whose authority I'm doing the things that I'm doing if you answer me one question. This is a very, very good technique in apologetics. Let me ask you a question. As Michael was saying this morning, it's not always about giving answers. It's about asking questions. Jesus asks over 100 questions in the New Testament, never because he's short of relevant information, but because he's trying to make people face themselves and their assumptions. So he says to them, John, the ministry of John the Baptist, John's baptism, John's preaching, you're familiar with it. Was it from God or was it from men? He's thrown a curveball there right back at them. Brilliant strategy. You see, they're wanting to force Jesus into a situation where if he says, well, my teaching is from God, I'm doing this on God's authority, they've got further grounds for blasphemy, perhaps a impromptu stoning as had taken place several times before, or attempts had taken place before. If he says it's my own, they would say, well, then why should we believe you? That's the, that's the dilemma they're trying to place Jesus in. And by asking them about the ministry of John, the Pharisees, they actually consult with one another. The scripture says that, that they actually do a sort of group hug and say, now, look, if we say that, is, that John's ministry is from God, then he'll say, well, why didn't you listen to him? Why didn't you believe him? But if we say it was just human, well, the crowd loved John. They'll stone us. They'll turn on us. So they turned back to Jesus. Do you know what they said? We don't know. And so Jesus says, well, neither shall I answer your question. Because the question was disingenuous. Jesus often used then John's name and John's ministry. He's an important figure. But he's clear that he doesn't appeal to John because he needs human testimony. His testimony is not from man. Indeed, it can't be because that would make God subject to man's validation. And you may not have picked this up in my previous sessions yet, but this is why the proof of Christianity, a true apologetic for Christianity, is an indirect proof. It's not direct. I don't say, well, now look at the brute facts, the bare facts of reality out there. Now let's just Assume for a moment that they may or may not lead to God. Now, let me just see. If I compile this fact on this fact, on this observation, on this argument, maybe I can build up to the point where you can climb up there and discover there's a God by starting from some sort of illusory neutral position. There is no neutral position. How can God be subject to man's validation? That's like asking your cat to check your math homework. You cannot get the lesser, cannot validate the greater. God's testimony of himself must be self-attesting. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't evidences. It simply means that the challenge to the non-believer is to make sense of life and reality, make it intelligible in any way, shape, or form without the God of Scripture. Nowhere in the Bible do you read uh, what we would today perhaps call a cosmological argument for the existence of God. Uh, that is an argument from motion or from causality. 
The scripture just states, in the beginning was the word. Because Paul says men know God, but they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We're just trying to take the lid off. That's the task of apologetics. Validation ultimately does not come from man. Christ's purpose is soteriological. That is that they might be saved. It's concerning their salvation that he's pointing to John. He said the same thing when he went to the tomb of Lazarus. You recall when Jesus stood at the tomb of Lazarus and he prayed his prayer of petition and thanksgiving. He says, Father, I know you always hear me. I'm not saying this because I don't think you're listening. It's for the sake of the people here that they may know that you've sent me. As Michael was saying this morning, John's gospel is written for the non-believer primarily. These things are written that you may believe and believing have life in his name. He tells them that John was a burning and a shining lamp. Leon Morris, uh, one evangelical commentator, suggests that this sense of John being a burning and a shining lamp also suggests a kind of burning up. That is, that the testimony of John, John's witness, was a costly witness. John was beheaded. And as we've been hearing in the mornings this week, it is costly to witness to the truth about Jesus Christ. It can cost you everything. It may cost you everything. Because there are some who hate the light and are so determined to stamp it out that they will persecute the church and persecute those who witness to the truth. A few weeks ago, I had a phone call from my father in Pakistan. My parents have worked amongst Muslims in Pakistan for 13, 14 years. And he was uh, calling me from the Sindh, the desert. And... uh, There are times when my dad amazes me. He's 65 now. His ability to sleep on a straw mat in the desert with scorpions and snakes and so forth. And he told me that uh, where they were, they were receiving death threats from the Taliban. And they were given five days to get out. He was teaching in a, a small Bible school that's been recently established down there. Now this may seem distant to us, but this reality that the John the Baptist faced, the reality of persecution in the early church, is a reality for many Christians around the world today still. John was a burning and a shining light. Perhaps that indicates even the burning up, something which burns is ultimately consumed. But John's light was a derivative light. It wasn't an original light. He was not the light. We just read in uh, the prologue earlier in the week That he was not that light, but he came as a witness to the light. That is, his light was a derivative light. It was a lamp, and it had been predicted long before. In fact, in the Psalms of Ascent, in Psalm 132, verse 17, we read, There I will make the horn of David grow. I will prepare a lamp for my anointed. The ministry of John was foretold. And so John's voice is a voice in the desert. It's a voice crying out in the wilderness. It's a lamp. And Jesus is very clear with his emphatic eye here. Verse 36, look with me. The testimony that I have is greater than that of John. So John was important. He was worthy of notice. But Jesus' testimony, he says, it was weightier than that of John. John's testimony was not primary. When you read uh, St. Augustine, 
on this passage, I like what he says. He puts it so beautifully about the relationship between John the Baptist as the lamp and Jesus as the noonday, the light. He says concerning this passage in John, Thou didst direct attention to the lamp. Thou didst admire the lamp and exalted its light. But the lamp says there is a sun in which thou ought to exalt. And though it burns in the night, it bids thee to be looking out for the day. Lest a man should stay at the lamp and think the light of the lamp to be sufficient for him. Therefore the Lord neither says that this lamp has been superfluous, this is John, nor yet does he say that thou oughtest to stay at the lamp. Of John the Baptist indeed it had been said he was not the light, but that he might bear witness of the light. In comparison of the other light, he was not light, for that was the true light which enlightens every man coming into this world. John was the first witness and an important witness. The second witness was Jesus points to was his works, his signs, his miracles. We're going to look at one or two of them this week. And this is not an impersonal witness. This is not just saying, Jesus is not simply saying here, look at uh, this interesting event over here. Look at this empirical phenomenon over here. Look at this unexpected happening. This was part of God's testimony concerning him. They were signs. And they were always pointing beyond themselves. Jesus says the son can do nothing of himself but what he sees his father doing. Jesus says that. We see that in verse 19. These signs are pointing. that Jesus never did uh, magic tricks to entertain the crowd. It was not about uh, just amazing people. You know, Jesus could have stunned people with all kinds of parlor tricks. He was tempted to do them. Throw yourself down from this high place and let the angels catch you up according to the scripture so that you don't dash your foot against the stone. He could have done things to impress the multitude. Very often he took people aside. He took them away from the crowd or he told them not to go and not to say anything. Or he took just a few disciples with him. The signs of Jesus are never sensationalism for sensationalism's sake. They always had a specific purpose to witness to his unique authority. Leslie Newbegin, and if you want to pick up a commentary on John's Gospel, I would recommend to you Leslie Newbegin's commentary, a very readable commentary, The Light Has Come. He says this, For those with eyes to see, these works are signs that the reign of God is present. But for some they are not signs of the kingdom, but causes of offense. Such people are offended because they do not have God's word abiding in them, so they do not recognize them as witnesses of the Father's approval. This is an incredible fact of the New Testament. That many people saw the amazing signs and miracles that Jesus was doing and still did not believe. If I had a dollar for every time a skeptic or an atheist said to me, well, if I just saw this or if I could just see you do this, just levitate this podium, I'd believe. It's nonsense. In fact, in the parable of the, the uh, account or parable, whichever way you want to read it, of the rich man and Lazarus, we're told that they will not believe even if someone rises from the dead. And when Lazarus was raised, many went back to report the event to the authorities and they plotted to kill him. This tells us that miracles in themselves are powerless to save or convince. And, th- and there is a tendency 
in the church to think in certain quarters that if only we could have a few more signs and wonders, if we could just have a bit more thunder from heaven, I've had plenty of that this week, if we could have some more great powerful demonstrations, then you know, the church would suddenly recover and there would be a massive outpouring. I don't think that's true. Ten lepers were healed. How many came back to acknowledge it? One. Miracles, signs, extraordinary happenings, if you like, don't in themselves convince because the importance of a sign is what it signifies. And if you don't recognize what it signifies, it doesn't serve to enlighten but only to condemn in Scripture. A sign is only as good as your ability to read the sign, isn't it? I find that when traveling in Quebec. (laughs) Or if you go to the UK, travel in Wales. A sign is only as good as your ability to interpret and understand what is signified by it. The signs of Christ were pointing beyond themselves to the identity of our Lord. The third witness referred to initially in verse 32. Jesus comes back to his father in verse 37 and 38. And the father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. This is the greatest witness of all, but this is not something new that's happening. This is not a shock was mentioned this morning or yesterday, I can't remember, that the testimony of God, this witness to his son, began in Genesis 3 verse 15. The seed of the woman shall bruise the serpent's head. I'll put enmity between his seed, your seed and his seed. The two seeds is the the plot line which Augustine uses to plot the, the history of the world in the city of God. The testimony of God has been there, of God the Father, to the redemptive work of the Son throughout history. This is not something altogether new. All of biblical revelation, we understand, rightly interpreted, points to the Son. And so Jesus is not perturbed or troubled that his ministry is faced with opposition. Why? Because ultimately he knows he has the witness and testimony of his Father. That's how Jesus is able to endure what he endures throughout his ministry because he knows he has the testimony and the witness of his Father. It's very easy, isn't it, as a Christian to be tossed about, to be blown around this way and that by every wind and wave in our experience. It's good to be reminded that Paul tells us if God be for us, who can be against us? If the Father is with us, We have his witness, his testimony. One faithful person with God is a majority. When I was working towards a church plant in the city of Toronto and everything was going wrong, and I mean everything, I was trying to remind myself of this, that a majority of one is one person with God. That's a majority. You can have a majority if God's with you. Even if you're on your own, just like Athanasius against the world. The scripture is full of reassurances that he's the captain of our salvation, our shield, our buckler, our strong tower, our deliverer. 
challenge is believing it and living in terms of it. I have a, uh, a little, I don't know what you'd call it, a motto or something now written over the door of my study at the church. Just above the staircase, it reads, faith is taking the first step even when you can't see the whole staircase. And that's part of the challenge of walking the Christian life. We can only do it when we have the witness and the testimony of God in our own hearts that we are his children. The father then testifies concerning the son. But there is unbelief and there is ignorance in the hearers. And Jesus identifies the source of their unbelief despite the testimony of God. So he cited John the Baptist. He cited his signs. He's now cited the witness of his father, which is demonstrated That testimony is found in every aspect of his ministry. He says, but you don't believe. First, he says, the first reason Jesus gives is he says, you've never heard his voice. Moses heard the voice of God. So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend, Exodus 33, 11. But Jesus says, you've never heard it. The second thing Jesus says is that you've never seen his form. But Jacob wrestled with the angel of the Lord. These are Christophanies in a sense. They're pre-incarnate appearances of our Lord. Jacob said at Peniel, he says in Genesis 32, 30, For I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. The third thing Jesus tells them is that they don't have God's word abiding in them, but some of their forebears had. What does the psalmist say in Psalm 119, 11? Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. So there were those, there were faithful people throughout the history of Israel who did understand these things. But this word Jesus is telling them has not been nurtured in your hearts by faith, and so it is Your knowledge as such is sterile. It is lifeless. It's just head knowledge. You know the Scriptures. You search the Scriptures. But you don't understand them. You don't realize that they're pointing to me. Unbelief, you see, destroys the possibility of communion with God. It doesn't matter whether you're even reading the Bible. You know it. Skeptic can read the New Testament unless God enlightens their eyes. It doesn't bring them to salvation. What we see clearly in all of this is that the witness of the Father is only available to those who believe the promises concerning the Son or embrace His finished work. We have to take that step of faith to believe on Christ and then we receive that testimony from God. That assurance from God. It's Augustine who said, I believe in order that I may understand. So often we want everything worked out. We want all the details worked out. We want to have lined up every syllogism. We want to make sure that we've got every question answered before we're willing to take that first step. Not in any other area of life do we live like that. In fact, you would do nothing if you lived in any way on the basis of that principle. You wouldn't move an inch. It's as we step out in faith upon God that the witness of the Father, of the Holy Spirit, becomes central. As an apologist, I've been 
obviously taken up for a long time in my ministry with this question of authentication and validation. In fact, it's been my primary concern for many years with this individual or this person or this group of people. How can I communicate to them in such a way that these claims of our Lord Jesus Christ are authenticated and validated and vindicated? How can I do it? Why do people not recognize Jesus for who he is? I've wrestled with that question. And I've wrestled with it, I believe, honestly. As honestly as I'm able to. One of the things I have realized is that I'm not a Christian today because anybody lined up a series of arguments for me and proved it. That's not why I'm a Christian. Now, I know a lot of arguments, but it's not why I'm a Christian. And I want to suggest to you that you're not a believer today. You're not a Christian because you took a blank piece of paper, drew a line down the middle, said, here's four, here's against all the balance of probabilities, just tipping in the favor of Jesus, so I think I'll be a Christian. No, something deeper is going on than that. Somehow we don't need a direct proof of his divinity because we know who he is as surely as we know our own names if we've got the testimony of the Holy Spirit operative in our hearts. How is God to be authenticated or his word validated? Well, it can't be validated by anything beyond itself because there is nothing and no one more ultimate than God to appeal to. We saw last night, he is the I am that I am. He's the source of all definition. He's the beginning of all explanations. His word must be self-attesting. You see, what would strike me as dubious if I read it in Scripture and actually totally self-contradictory in terms of the claims of the faith would be to read extended arguments for the existence of God in here. That would make it a totally dubious book because the God which Scripture speaks about is the creator, sustainer, and governor of all things. You cannot validate the God of Scripture by bringing him into the bar of human thinking and reasoning. What I can do, and what I try to show, what I believe Scripture encourages us to show, is the futility of all thinking and living outside of this. The absurdity and the futility of it all. But God speaks a self-attesting word. There is no criterion beyond him. It's very simple, my friends. If you were to prove or establish this God by a criteria beyond Jesus Christ, then that criteria would actually be your new God, wouldn't it? Because it would be more ultimate, more basic, more final, more authoritative than God himself. You know, when I'm uh, talking to my daughters sometimes, they do ask me a lot of questions, difficult questions. And, uh, but you know, children are very repetitive in the way they ask questions, aren't they? And so they just say why to one thing after another until you reach a point of frustration. Um, uh, things, things as simple as, you know, watering the plants. You know, why are we doing that? Well, because, you know, the plants need water to drink because they, like, they need to grow. Well, why? Well, because, uh, you know, living things need water and they need sunlight and photosynthesis and that comes a bit complicated. And, yeah, but why do they need that? Well, you know, because I said so. And that is the question. That's the ultimate question of philosophy. 
Who can say, because I said so? It's either man or it's God. And God alone can say, because I said so. We do appeal to that as parents because we believe we've got a higher authority than our children. In other words, when we come to think about the God of Scripture and Christ's attestation, it's Him who brings all else into judgment. He says, for judgment I have come into this world. Newbegin again writes, of the Father concerning the Trinity. He says, of the Father who is the source of all being and of all truth, of the Son by whose perfect obedience... The being and truth are present in human life as part of public history and of the spirit of the Father and the Son by whose sovereign and gracious action my reason and conscience are enabled to acknowledge the Son and through him to join in glorifying the Father. It's the action of the Trinity in bringing us to an understanding of the truth. And this witness is totally personal because it comes from the absolute personality of God. Actually, God relates to us completely personally. There's nothing impersonal about God's universe. God relates to his people. It's not just that God is personal in his being. He's personal in terms of his relationship with us. How does he relate to human beings? How has he always related to us? Through covenants, which are personal agreements. He doesn't give us an equation and say, meditate on that, think about that abstraction. He relates to us in terms of his promises, in terms of an agreement, which is a personal contract, a personal covenant with us. It's a new covenant in Jesus Christ. John Calvin begins his institutes by recognizing that the knowledge of oneself and the knowledge of God are dependent upon one another. You can't really know yourself truly without the knowledge of God. You can't really know God without a recognition of who you are as a human being. They're interrelated, those ideas, because we're creatures of God, and we always stand in terms of relationship to God. And so when we reject the divine person, Jesus Christ, all you're left with is a universe governed by impersonal fate. There is no other alternative. And I've pointed out already, as we've looked at the prologue, that this is the ultimate difference between Christianity and every other worldview. We hold to a total personalism in everything, our totally personal God, who relates to us in personal terms, in filial relationship. You see, the skeptic will often ask, well, why doesn't God just peel back the sky and write his name up there or something? Do something dramatic. feel like Elijah now. (laughs) If he'd only do something dramatic, you know, everybody would hold theism. But you'd really think that God's objective is to make theists. To have people accept a proposition that God exists. Is that how Scripture strikes you? No. The purpose of God's revelation of Himself is to draw people into filial relationship, family relationship, that we might be children of God. That we might know Him and walk with Him. Not just that I might affirm a proposition, 
This total personalism means that Jesus Christ alone offers love and friendship. God the Father offers fatherhood in a truly moral, truly rational universe and a just universe because Jesus Christ, the final judge, will give justice to the earth. Irrationality always insists on some form of impersonalism. An impersonal universe, blindness, fate, chaos. And out of blindness, fate, and chaos, friends, you can't get rationality. Jesus Christ is the personal God of Scripture who finally comes to, and I close with this, the fourth witness, Scripture itself. The final witness Jesus calls to his defense is Scripture, and to the Scriptures Jesus constantly appeals throughout his ministry. In fact, he uses the terms law and the Word of God uh, almost interchangeably in the New Testament. The law of God, the Word of God. It's no surprise then that the focus of his indictment against his opponents here is their failure to believe Moses, the human instrument God used, the authority behind the Torah. And the Jews of the time had long confused the role of the law, the role of the Torah, treating it as the source of life rather than the way of life. Jesus expounds the law in Matthew 5 in what we come to, have come to call the Beatitudes. And the Pharisaic problem was seeing the law or legal obedience as the source of life rather than God's commandments being the way of life. This meant that their searching of the scriptures, as diligent as it was, meant that they misused them and sought life in the letter rather than in the person that scriptures revealed. In fact, Jesus' indictment against the Pharisees was not that they spent too much time in Bible study. A lot of Christians are a bit confused about this. The problem with the Pharisees was that they were too concerned about the scripture, too concerned about the letter, too worried about God's commands, not living in grace. No, that wasn't the problem. Jesus says you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. The problem for the Pharisee was not that he was overly zealous about Scripture, is that he didn't read them correctly, didn't understand them properly because he didn't read them in the light of the promises God had made concerning Christ. He says in, Jesus says in verse 39, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. It's possible to deal with Scripture in this fashion, in this erroneous fashion, because there's two types of knowing. You can know about something, and then you can truly know it, or someone, because all knowledge is ultimately personal. So you can say, Joe, I know a lot about the Queen. I've been researching the Queen. I know how many jewels are in her crown. I know how many corgis she has in her bedroom at night, and so forth. You might become an expert on the Queen. But if you actually knew somebody who'd spent time with the queen, walked with her, talked with her. Who really has true knowledge of the queen? So you might say to me, for example, um, I, I'm a train spotter. I'm really interested in trains, and I have a fascination with the Orient Express. I know all about the Orient Express in Thailand and Malaysia. And I could say to you, well, you know what? I don't know much about the Orient Express and its history, but I've been on it. I've actually been from um, 
Bangkok to Singapore through Thailand and Malaysia on the Orient Express. Marvelous experience. Waking up in the morning, going to the observation car, looking out over the rice paddy field, seeing those huge hats shading people from the sun early as the sun was coming up. That's experimental experience. That's knowledge. Direct experience. And that is the kind of knowledge that God wants for us in and through the person of Christ. It's not just that we know propositions about him which are incredibly important, but that we might know him and walk with him. Otherwise, we risk becoming simply doctrine heir. Rather than being concerned in walking in obedience, we can miss the wood for the trees. You can memorize a body of sound doctrine and still be a dead corpse. You know that. I read an article a few months back which disturbed me rather. It was called, Why Are Reformed Christians So Mean? And I'm reformed in my thinking. I'm very happy about that. I was, the, the title of the article caught my eye. And you know, what are the difficulties that sometimes when we have a keen interest in theology and truth and doctrine, it's possible that if we don't have an equal measure of grace and the work of the Spirit in our lives, we actually can become pharisaical in our thinking, prideful in our thinking, and actually lacking in grace towards others. We can't ever artificially separate these two. Jesus was filled with grace and truth. And I often meet people who are very keen to impress me with their knowledge. And sometimes I'm impressed. You know? But is that the goal of the Christian life? Is that what God is ultimately seeking to work in us? Just head knowledge? No. Knowledge has great value, but he who increases knowledge also increases sorrow. It's important that we study to present ourselves to God as one approved. All of those things are critically important. Of, of, of all people, as an apologist, I understand that. But I also understand the danger of my own calling. That we can miss what God is wanting to do in our lives. That we wouldn't be wooden and remote, but pliable, personable, gracious, filled with the truth. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus identifies the root of their problem of rejecting him, though. Human pride and self-glorying. Verse 41, I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I've come in my Father's name. You don't receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? The basic problem, Jesus says, for you, the reason you don't receive me and receive my word and don't recognize my identity as the Son is your own pride and human glorying. Here we have it, my friends. You can have devotion to God and even devotion to the Scripture, but be devoid of the love of God. And danger afflicts all of us. We all love place and precedency, influence, temptations of power. Jesus was speaking to the academics of his day. This is a big problem in the intellectual community, in the academic community. It's a problem everywhere, but it does raise its head here. 
Jesus is dealing with these academics. And even in Christian circles today, there can be a lusting after the praise of the world. A lusting after man's credentialing. Jesus says that we should be seeking first the approval that comes from God. It's worth nothing if we've got the, you know, the the whole notion of credentialing, of accreditation from credo, means I believe. So if you're credentialed by some institution and that's more important to you than the credentialing that comes from God, what you're saying is I, I stand under, I believe what this institution represents. Pieces of paper are very important. I don't want to diminish the importance. But if it gets in the way of our devotion to God, and if it's about human glorying, so that people can walk, so that I might walk about in the street and be, greet, be greeted as teacher, doctor, reverend. Paul says it's all done. It's like filthy rags. All of our vanity, it's like filthy rags. Jesus tells them that because they seek this honor from men and not from God, they're unwilling to submit to his authority, and they'll receive other human authorities instead. And I was talking about this yesterday. He says, I come in my Father's name, in my Father's authority. You don't receive me. Somebody else will come in their own name, and you'll receive them. And that's what we're doing in the West right now. We're listening to all so many other would-be authorities, so many others coming in their own name, We're receiving them. To come in someone's name was to come in their authority in the ancient world. So when Jesus came in his father's name, he's saying, I'm coming on my father's authority. You remember the parable of the wicked tenants? He keeps sending his servants, and his servants are being beaten and sent away. And finally he says, I'll send my son, my only son. Now listen to him. Why? Because he represents me. He's my son. And they killed the son. And the Pharisees knew exactly what Jesus was saying. The word authority is an important word. It relates to the word author. It actually comes from the same Latin word, author and authority. Author, authority. I mean, literally, to produce, to increase. An author is a creator. You're the author of something. You're the creator of something. An authority is somebody who has the right of jurisdiction or the right to command. Christ, for us, is the supreme authority over all things in heaven and earth because his jurisdiction is total. He's the creator and redeemer of all things. He's the creator. He's He's the author and finisher of our faith. The Greco-Roman world... And in the modern age of humanism, it's man's autonomous reason that's exalted and given this place of authority. And we're told, well, because of this position of man's mind to judge the person of Christ, we're told that biblical revelation, well, it's implausible, it's impossible, it's discriminatory, it's sexist, it's homophobic, it's intolerant, and so on. And this is not a new idea. The Greek thinker from the first century, Lucretius, who was an evolutionist, wrote, nothing can ever be created by divine power out of nothing. First century BC. It's the Christ 
and his authority or it's some other authority. By faith, the writer of Hebrews says, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. And this was the problem facing the Pharisees. It was a rejection of biblical authority. That's Jesus' final witness, the scripture. It wasn't that they were overly disciplined and overly keen on the scriptures and he was condemning them for their adherence to God's word. No, it was that they really rejected ultimately the authority of the scriptures in favor of their own thinking and in favor of their own traditions. In particular, Jesus identifies the law of God, the Torah. He says, you claim to place your hope right here in Moses. And Moses is the one who speaks about me. Notice that Jesus did not say, your problem is you're too Old Testament bound. You've not understood the cultural blindness of Moses. He didn't say, stop being so legalistic. Stop focusing on Scripture. Tell me what you really feel about things. He says, you want to claim Moses? Let's go to Moses. Because Moses wrote about me. Moses speaks about me, and since you don't believe Moses, how can you possibly believe what I am saying to you? In fact, Jesus here says something pretty startling. He says, Moses will condemn you. As far as I'm aware, and I can be corrected afterwards, and we're wrapping up now. You can come and correct me if I'm wrong. As far as I'm aware, Moses is the only person other than human other than Christ who's going to be involved in the judgment according to this. That Moses is going to be involved somehow in condemning at the judgment those who reject the authority of Jesus Christ because Jesus spoke to Moses at the burning bush. It's not a different God, you know. The word, I should say, to be strictly theologically accurate, lest I be taken aside by a nitpicker afterwards. God the Son, God, the eternal God of Scripture, manifest in Christ. He spoke to Moses at the bush. And this unity of the Scripture is reinforced in the New Testament where? At the Mount of Transfiguration. Who does Jesus speak with on the mountain? Moses and Elijah. We're living in a time when people think they can jettison Moses, beginning with Genesis. But there is a unity of the witness to Jesus. And he's clear about it. Moses wrote about me. Moses speaks about me. If you do not believe him, you cannot believe what I say. My friends, let me conclude with this thought. We cannot compromise with the word of God in any part because everywhere it points to Jesus Christ. And these four witnesses testify to Jesus' identity. John the Baptist, the signs the Father, and the Scriptures. And Jesus defends his own divinity on the basis of the Scriptures. Don't forget that. And when he was quoting those Scriptures, don't forget there was no New Testament. You know, Jesus did not have the NIV study Bible to hand, nor did the early church. The Bible of the early church, when Paul was writing to them and telling them to search the Scriptures, was the Old Testament was the the Word of God, the books of Moses, the prophetic literature, the Psalms. If we reject His Word, we're like the Pharisees, and it was because they rejected the Scripture that they didn't recognize Him. 
And if we do not embrace the Christ that the Scripture reveals, friends, and it's possible even for those in the church to do this, we can fail to recognize who Jesus really is because the Christ that we have becomes actually a creation of our own imaginations. Some of the Jesuses I hear about today sound more like Karl Marx or a 1960s hippie than the Jesus of Scripture. It's the Christ of Scripture that we are to worship. We cannot drive any artificial wedge between the old and the new covenant. It's not two gods. There's not two ways of salvation. All attempts to make God one thing in the older covenant and another in the new are abortive, and it's polytheism. The four witnesses bear witness to the identity of Jesus. And Jesus cites them himself and tells us that if we believe these, we will recognize who he is. The witness of John, the witness of the signs, the witness of his father, the witness of the scriptures. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have revealed yourself ultimately and finally in your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is the one, the I am, the word made flesh. That he has spoken with a self-attesting authority. And yet in condescension and in grace. He's pointed us to yourself, to your word. To his miracles. To the testimony of John. That we might be saved. That we might know the truth. That the truth might set us free. Lord would you help us to be those who sit under your word and surrender to it not those who try and sit in judgment over you. Help us, Lord, to discover that your word points us finally and ultimately to yourself, drawing us into filial relationship as your children. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of knowledge and wisdom that you long to give to us. Lord, I pray that you would help each of us to strive to better understand, to be diligent in study, to be faithful in reading your word, to grow in our understanding of who you are, but never to forget that without the work of your Holy Spirit making your word live in us, it's just dead formalism. It's just head knowledge. Deliver us from knowledge that would simply puff up and make us arrogant or conceited or graceless with each other. And humble us, Lord, in our hearts that we would be those who'd be sur surrendered and submitted to you and therefore a savor of life and of grace to our brothers and sisters and to those who do not yet know you. Help us to be a faithful witness to the truth. Give us wisdom as we seek to reach those who do not yet know you within our own families, within our own communities, in the workplace, in the university, in the school. We thank you for this time, Lord, to be together as your people in worship. Let your word dwell richly in our hearts we pray for jesus sake amen thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the ezra institute for contemporary christianity please feel free to share it with friends but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the eicc thank you